Hello, my name is Shane Snedeker, and I am here to host Hi, I'm Earth. Have we met? On this podcast, I deliver some sanity in a world that is becoming more and more insane. Do you ever feel like things you're seeing and the world you're experiencing bear no resemblance to the world you once knew? Well, you're not alone. Join me on this podcast for a dose of stabilizing common sense and rationality. I will do my best to counterbalance the craziness in our lives by analyzing social and political issues, conducting respectful and open free speech dialogues, and trying to extend some lighthearted fun your way. I hope you'll be encouraged and return for more episodes. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Hi, I'm Earth, Have We Met? Just to remind you... There's a scene in Tommy Boy where David Spade and Chris Farley need to get to Chicago. And they need to, they're, they're trying to stop uh, Chris Farley's character's family business from being sold. And so they need to get to Chicago in a hurry and they're at the airport and David Spade is trying to deliberate with the woman at the airline counter and trying to just you know, portray his sense of urgency and she keeps giving him resolutions that don't actually help them. And he's just getting increasingly more frustrated and then he just looks at her and says, Hi, I'm Earth. Have we met? And I've actually linked that scene in the show notes if you want to watch it. It's pretty funny, but... Um, I feel like we all kind of feel like that sometimes in this in this current stage of affairs where from day to day a lot of what's happening in the world is head scratching and it's just kind of like are we are we on the same planet so i wanted to review why i named the podcast that while there were some volatile world events throughout my childhood and early 20s you know like the oj simpson car chase i remember watching that live action um and the, the subsequent trial, there was the Bill Clinton impeachment controversy. I remember Y2K, like people freaking out that, you know, with the turning of the century, they thought that the computers were going to crash. And a lot of people went out and got a bunch of doomsday packets and water and, um, you know, dry food and all of those things. Uh, that was a big thing. 9-11, of course, is definitely probably the, f the number one thing in my life, you know, pre-COVID uh, that it was, it was a big deal. You know, it was, it was all over the news and it, it kind of stopped society, kind of put us at a standstill there for a while. I'll never forget where I was during 9-11. But overall, as I ponder my 37 years on this earth, the last 12 years or so places the early part of my life in a whole new light. Like from the mid-1980s to about 2008, when Obama got elected the first time, things were relatively normal. Like politicians were definitely crooked, but they could be seen laughing together and shaking hands and getting along. And the divide between the left and the right was not much more than a tongue-in-cheek friendly punchline. There was little to no vitriol and internal divisiveness amongst Americans. While there was always Middle East tensions, 
I really don't remember my parents worrying about international conflicts, wars, rumors of wars, or countries like China or Russia legitimately contending militarily with the United States. Overall, I guess I could I guess you could say I just I felt safe. I had a very normal high school experience. I went to school with black kids and white kids and Asians and Hispanics and we all got along and mutually respected each other. Now obviously I'm not saying everything was perfectly hunky-dory and there was no conflict. People are people and certainly there were jerks who did mean things. But overall, parents could work their jobs Monday through Friday. They could expect to learn, earn a good living. They expected politicians to be mostly honest and concerned with serving America's best interests. And kids could go to school and partake in extracurricular sports and activities where they were able to be goofy and interact with each other without any political or underlying social pressures. Something shifted around the time Obama got elected. And I'm truly not saying, you know, I don't bring up Obama to blame him. That's just the, the marker in my memory that kind of marks the distinct time that I remember feeling like the foundations of the world that my life had been raised upon began to, to crack. And since then, it has progressively gotten worse and worse, culminating with COVID, which has thrust this sensation into overdrive. Does that make sense? Do any of you, does that resonate with any of you? Well, much of what I discussed today will originate straight out of my Christian faith. So to those of you who are not Christians, I am very happy that you're joining me today. I invite you to just listen. Listen to the Christian perspective. And I always invite your feedback. You probably won't agree with much of what I say, but if you come to a source of contention regarding something that I assert today, I invite you to email me. My email address will be linked in the show notes. I want to preface the rest of this episode by acknowledging my favorite Bible teacher of all time, the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Spokane, Ken Ortiz. Much of the content in this episode is an assimilation of many of the messages he has delivered over the past couple of years. I have linked a couple of his messages that were most influential to me in the show notes below if you want to check them out. And I have a lot of content here. I'm going to try to get through it you know, as clearly and quickly as possible, but this episode will certainly be longer than I anticipate my average podcast episodes to be. So I just want you to be aware of that. But I feel like I have a lot of good stuff here that is interesting. So I hope you join me for the ride. Um, okay, so judging from many of the social media posts that I saw when I still had a social media account, and from many of the actual conversations that I've had over the last couple of years, many of you agree that all that transpired in the world and in America in the last several years has left you feeling a bit unstable. Like all that you thought you knew about the world is called into question. Like the future that you envision for yourself or your family is in jeopardy. It's certainly not wrong to have those feelings. The COVID pandemic alone has gone from two weeks to flatten the curve to a never-ending saga of relentless public policies and regulations. In 2016, we experienced a surreal reality TV-like election cycle where we elected a pop icon. During an extremely uncomfortable, hostile, volatile 2020 election, we saw unprecedented 
media influence and censorship and are now living through the presidency of a man who no human being with an ounce of intellectual honesty could deny is not mentally fit for the presidency. Yet he continues to be propped up by an unseen force or group of conspirators who are ultimately pulling the strings. While China is busy lying about all things COVID, persecuting and sterilizing thousands of Uyghur Muslims, and feverishly developing an economy and a military that will almost certainly surpass the United States soon. Iran is in a Cold War type scenario with Israel. Tensions are high everywhere. No matter what side of the aisle you reside on ideologically, I think it goes without saying that the media and political leaders are beyond corrupt, which leaves us disenfranchised and left distrusting and doubting almost everything, particularly the people that we are supposed to be able to believe in. Not to mention, I personally have friends and family members who are facing dishonorable discharge from the military or loss of employment because of personal medical decisions that the government disagrees with. There aren't many things that can make you feel like you're going through a life earthquake more than losing your employment and your means of providing for yourself and your family. It is in light of all of these uncertainties and the swirling roller coaster of emotions that we find ourselves in that I present episode three of this podcast. You see, I want to posit today that there is a source of wisdom that is capable of being found and once identified and grasped will bring a stabilizing security. If you can grab onto this source, it is capable of anchoring your soul, rendering you immovable in the midst of the harsh and persistent winds of these current times. Finding this source comes through discernment. Discernment is an acuteness of judgment and understanding. I'm going to take a stab at helping us tap into this kind of judgment and understanding so that we can firmly anchor our weary souls to the only firm foundation. I'm happy to have you on this journey today. So first of all, I just want to assert that our beliefs have consequences. Like what we believe matters. If we believe in something that is true, then it is real. And if it is real, then it will work. Likewise, if we believe something that isn't true, then it isn't real. And if it isn't real, it won't work. The truth works and untruths do not work, no matter how pretty or seductive they may be. So I'm a total sucker for Dateline. And my brother recently informed me that they converted Dateline into a podcast. And now that I'm, you know, gotten into podcasts, I've kind of become hooked on the Dateline podcast. And I just listened to one where this truly sadistic guy convinced several people that he was a seer. And he was hundreds of years old and had died several times and come back to life. He built a following and realized that through manipulation and deceit, he could not work by killing people and collecting life insurance policies. And none of the actual dirty deeds were completed by him. He just convinced his followers to do it all. So he developed this community where everyone feared him and did everything he instructed. Other people would set up insurance policies for large sums of money. And when funds for the community began to dissipate, he would mysteriously predict someone's death within his role as seer. And then they would mysteriously die, and a member of the community who was under his control would be the beneficiary of the life insurance policy, 
and then they would move states to prevent detection. Since he wasn't actually filing any of the paperwork or doing, you know, really any of the actual deeds of this system, it was nearly impossible to trace any of it back to him. And he had this mom and her two daughters totally convinced and deceived, and he was regularly sexually abusing them. While I doubt that this evil guy actually believed his lies, he did convince several people that lies were the truth. And their belief in those lies had devastating results. Because honestly, our beliefs have consequences and lies don't work. Think about the ideology of the Nazis. They really believed that they were the superior race. How did that work out? What about communism? Many different political leaders and factions have peddled this lie, and not once in the history of the world when it has been tried has it ever worked out, because only the truth works. In my life, the most secure and pervasive and relentlessly verified truth that consistently works out to be real and reliable is the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. With billions of copies printed and distributed, it's the world's bestseller for a reason, because it works. You want to know how the modern scientific field of archaeology began? People wanted to test out some of the historical accounts laid out in the Bible. So they used the Bible as a geographical map and began searching for evidence. And guess what? What they discovered is that each and every archaeological discovery has supported the biblical account. While the Bible is certainly first and foremost a supernatural love letter for humanity, it is also a historical document, and it reads like one. When you read other literature works of antiquity, like, say, the Book of Mormon or the Hindu Bhagavad Gita, they read more like historical fiction. Whereas it is undeniably obvious when you read the Bible that the different authors were real humans entrenched in real life just trying to intricately and carefully preserve the details of their situations. So that historians today use the biblical account as a reliable geographical, genealogical, and cultural reference point. One of the pioneers of modern archaeology, 19th century scientist Sir Frederick Kenyon said about the Bible and archaeology, in respect to the Old Testament, the evidence of archaeology has reestablished its authority. And early 20th century archaeologist Nelson Gluick said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. The Bible is true and real, and it works. The Bible certainly doesn't contain the exhaustive truths of the universe, but it does contain reliable answers to many of your heart's deepest inquiries. Why earth is here, where you came from, where humans came from, what your purpose is, and where is humanity headed? It provides a roadmap for humanity, and its ideals are tried and true. A few imperfect men and women dreamt a dream that drastically altered the face of history on earth. They dreamed of a nation built upon biblical ideals. They deliberately crafted the principles of the USA upon a belief in the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law from the Bible. And the consequences of those beliefs and those actions resulted in the conception of the greatest nation to ever come upon the earth, a nation where people were granted their God-given rights to be truly free. Were the founders perfect? Of course not. Was America created perfectly? Absolutely not. But the commitment to God and biblical ideals 
has borne undeniable fruit for hundreds of years. We seem to be standing on the precipice of watching America's leaders depart from that commitment and embrace a commitment to anti-biblical ideals. We're seeing the murdering of babies being celebrated and championed and legally protected. God created humans to be male and female and to be organized into families, descending through the reproduction of progeny from the marriage of a husband and a wife. That foundational life reality is directly under attack. As we see the nuclear family unit begin to crumble and the value our society places on human life dissipate as people reject the belief that God knits humans together in their mother's womb as male and female destined for creating families within the confines of marriage. We are experiencing the direct results of these beliefs. Individual liberty is a core biblical ideal, and individual liberty is currently on the cultural altar being sacrificed in the name of public health as defined by cultural elites and talking heads. I believe that as this trend continues, America can only expect an increase in depravity and destruction and instability, unfortunately. It's important, though, as we try to secure ourselves in a boat that seems to be swaying back and forth with a force that provokes fear of capsizing, that we keep the biblical benchmarks and signposts at the forefront of our minds. To really grasp a thorough understanding of where the world is going in light of all that's happening right now, I think it's important to take a brief glimpse back from where we've come. It's impossible to do this without discussing the nation of Israel. In the very beginning, God made a promise to the father of Israel, Abraham. He told Abraham, when he was technically still Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. To your offspring, I will give this land. This is one of the most important promises of God in the Bible. And I think we really take for granted how much of what happens in this world relates to this original promise of God. God brought Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees in current-day Iraq and promised him the land of Canaan, which is current-day Israel. He promised him that he would bless him and everyone through him and those who cursed him would be cursed. He promised the land to his descendants. This is really important to remember. A lot of people, including myself, struggle with the fact that the Jews are called God's people. Like, what makes them so special as opposed to other people groups? Well, the truth is that nothing makes them special other than they are the group of people that God chose to set apart to be an instrument that he would use to make himself known to the world. It's that simple. They were blessed so that they could bless and ultimately bring all humanity into a reconciled relationship to God through the birth, death, and resurrection of Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay, so... Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel, and they began living in the land of Israel sometime around 1500 BC. Israel built God a temple in Jerusalem where his presence could call home, the Temple of Solomon. Through the Old Testament law, the priests of Israel would offer sacrifices in the temple as a means of covering the sins of the Israelites. In 586 BC, Israel was captured and carried into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians totally destroyed God's temple, and the Jews were in exile from their homeland for 70 years until they returned home in 516 BC. 
They ultimately rebuilt the temple and maintained their homeland once again for roughly 550 years until 70 AD when the Roman Empire attacked Jerusalem and totally decimated and destroyed the temple, the second temple, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy from 40 years earlier when he said in Matthew 24 two, Do you see this magnificent building? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And the Jews again found themselves exiled from their home. And that's how it stayed for 1,900 years. Think about that. For 1,900 years, the Jews wandered the earth as aliens. Most historical scholars recognize that it typically only takes one generation for a group of refugees to become melded into the surrounding culture and blend in. Somehow, that has never happened to Israel. For 1,900 years, they lived in foreign countries and never lost their distinctiveness or their unique identity. God says in 1 Kings 8.53 that he singled Israel out from all nations of the world to be his own inheritance. As a nation, Israel was extinct. For 1,900 years, there just wasn't a nation of Israel. But God never forgot about his people or his promise of their land. The Lord asks a unique question through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 66.8 when he ponders, Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? And we know from recent history the answer to that question. Because around the turn of the 20th century, the Jews became unsettled with their reality of being homeless and began returning to their homeland. At that time, it was a barren desert wasteland owned by Turkey. They purchased their land back from Turkey, who was happy to gain profit off of what they considered valueless. Despite 1,900 years of being away, the land was still theirs on promise from God himself. And on May 15, 1948, the UN voted to make Israel a nation, thus creating a nation in a day and fulfilling the prophecy. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is discussing the end times and he specifically prophesied the Jews' um, 70 AD defeat and that the defeat would lead to Jerusalem being trampled on by the Gentiles or the non-Jews until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The Jews recapturing Israel and Jerusalem as they did in 1948 is a direct sign that the end times of earth as we know it have begun. Most people don't realize how huge of a deal Israel becoming a nation in 1948 is in light of current world events and biblical prophecy. It's a major deal. So Israel repurchases their homeland. What did they purchase? A dry, fruitless desert that no one else wanted. And yet, what has transpired in the 73 years since they've been back? They've developed some of the most sophisticated farming and agricultural technologies in the world, which has allowed them to become a world leader in cow milk production, a world leader in tomato production, an exporter of fruits and vegetables, they have the lowest yearly post-harvest grain loss margin in the world. So that the prophet Isaiah is proved right when he spoke of Israel, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Their advanced irrigation technology leads the world so that many of the drip irrigation systems used worldwide originated in Israel. They've created a state-of-the-art solar-powered water desalination technology that allows them to extract salt water out of the Mediterranean Sea and use it for drinking water. So now 80% of Israel's drinking water comes from the Mediterranean Sea. They have virtually solved the issue of not having clean water in the desert. 
They've offered this technology to their Middle Eastern neighbors, but they've all refused because they refuse to acknowledge that Israel has the upper hand in anything. Israel's currency, the shekel, is currently one of the strongest currencies in the world. They are in the top 10 technology leading countries in the world, and the U.S. isn't even on that list. They have an incredibly sophisticated military. They've discovered natural gas preserves in the Mediterranean Sea and have thus become energy self-sufficient. A shocking 20% of all Nobel Prize winners are Jewish, despite the fact that Israel's population comprises less than 0.2% of the world's population. And they've accomplished all of this in spite of relentless persecution and attempts of different groups to rid the world of them. They are literally thriving despite only having a population of 8 million people and being literally surrounded by a half billion people who want to kill them. They've dealt with 3,000 years of war after war and nothing but relentless conflict and people trying to kill them. They survived the Holocaust. Since 1948, Israel has been a part of eight wars and prevailed every time, while to not prevail would have certainly meant their extinction. They were mostly outnumbered and outmatched in each of those wars, but were nevertheless victorious each time, as if there's an invisible hand assisting them. Not ironically, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, and Jordan, and other countries who have tried to defeat Israel have suffered greatly in the aftermath and are, ex and are still experiencing the negative consequences of their defeats to Israel. God says in Zechariah chapter 12 that he would make Israel an immovable rock, and all who try to move her will injure themselves. Jerusalem has been attacked 52 times, besieged 23 times, captured 44 times, and completely destroyed twice. There simply is no parallel, and there's no human reason that makes sense of this. Jerusalem, by international and human standards, has nothing about it to make it notable or special. It's a small city with a population of only a million people in the middle of a very small desert country, surrounded by a handful of third world countries. Yet for 3,000 years, it has been the nexus of international conflict, despite having no real strategic importance. It's not on a highway of anywhere where anyone wants to go. It's not a destination for anyone other than religious pilgrims. It is, however, the only city that God has specifically consecrated and declared sacred back when Solomon was building the first temple. God said in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that his name would always be in Jerusalem, that his eyes and his heart would always be there. And thus, it is kind of like ground zero, so to speak, for all that God is doing in the world. And God says in Zechariah chapter 2 that whoever touches Jerusalem touches the apple of his eye. Various significant social events have come and gone and been forgotten over the last several decades, but Israel and Jerusalem and the political turmoil that happens there is a mainstay that consistently lights up the newsreel. There is no explanation for this or for Israel's prosperity and success outside of the truth of the Bible and the direct hand of God. None. The Bible is true, and thus it is real, and it works. He is using Jerusalem and Israel as a nexus point that allows him to keep shifting our attention back to it as the center of his plan for the world. The Bible does foretell of another war to come, called the Battle of Gog and Magog. The Bible says that on the hills of Israel, a large conglomeration of countries are going to march against Israel and a few countries that will come to their defense, trying to blot Israel off the face of the planet. 
it will be a David versus Goliath battle to the max. Like this conglomeration of countries will have such an overwhelming advantage that it will literally take a miracle for Israel to win. Gog and Magog are described in the Bible to be Rosh, Magog, Tubal, Meshach, Persia, Cush, Gomer, Beth Togarma, led by Gog, the prince of Rosh. If we delineate these biblical groups down into the current day cultures, we have all of the stands. Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. We have Iraq, Iran, Turkey, Lebanon, Ethiopia, Sudan, Libya, Algeria, Morocco. What do all of these countries have in common? They are all Muslim countries and they all hate Israel. In fact, in many of these countries, their world maps do not even recognize Israel on them. They teach their school children that Israel is evil and needs to be removed and that Hitler is a hero. The little group of countries that the Bible says will support Israel in this battle are Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish. Sheba and Dedan are the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates. What do these countries have in common? They are currently at peace with Israel and have recently made unprecedented peace treaties with Israel. It's a bit of a mystery who the Bible is referring to with the merchants of Tarshish. However, many biblical scholars believe it is referring to a nation that has a distance to travel to get to Israel, possibly a European country or maybe even America. The Battle of Gog and Magog will see the seemingly invincible and overwhelming army completely destroyed and utterly decimated by Israel. The Bible says that it will take seven years to clean up all of the refuse from that war. And the Bible also says that Israel will rebuild the temple for a third time. Orthodox Jews have already begun training for the temple rituals and began collecting all of the materials to rebuild it. Like this is actually actively taking place in Israel. They haven't started actually building because they don't possess the temple mount. But it is quite possible that their victory in the Battle of Gog and Magog will lead to them regaining possession of the Temple Mount so that they can rebuild the Temple. Because the seven-year tribulation gets kicked off when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel, paving the way for them to build the Temple. I say all of this partly because I'm a total nerd and I geek out on this kind of stuff. But also because I think that it's really important in order to really understand everything that's happening in the world to return to the foundation of Scripture. God has a plan, and Satan has an anti-plan. As we look globally at what's going on, we see wars and rumors of wars and an ever-increasingly intense focus on Israel as the focal point of God's plans on earth. But as we peer into our own culture, it becomes evident as well that Satan's anti-plan is feverishly at work, attempting to stunt the growth of God's kingdom. Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic is an accident? Do you know that there's videos of elites preparing for an event that is virtually identical to the COVID-19 pandemic? When the public leaders disparage COVID therapies that work and enforce baseless mandates for COVID medical interventions that don't work, you need to really sit back and realize that there's something much deeper than public health efforts going on. There's an anti-plan in place. When Joe Biden gets up and says he's going to lead America to a great reset or to build back better, you have to realize that Joe Biden is not the problem. There's larger forces of an anti-plan in place. Another result of COVID, the middle class is effectively getting eliminated. While the pandemic was tragically detrimental for little businesses who were arbitrarily deemed non-essential, effectively putting thousands and thousands of hardworking middle-class citizens out of work, simultaneously big businesses experienced mind-bogglingly record-breaking profits. 
The elite few got more wealthy and powerful while the middle class got pressed and pressured down into desperation and more reliance upon the government. All part of the anti-plan. So when you see the world moving in unison to crazy authoritarian dictates and making the general public move away from freedom and toward being dependent on the government, you can be sure that these players and political entities are beating to the drum of the anti-plan. The Bible makes clear that part of the anti-plan will see the world embrace one world government, one world economy, and one world religion. Think about it. Do you think that it's an accident that Christians who are proponents of national sovereignty are being vilified as racists for not supporting a globalist agenda? It's not an accident. The God of this earth is preparing the world to come under a unified government controlled by himself. Did you know that 3,000 of the world's richest and most elite individuals have started a group called the World Economic Forum that meets once a year in Davos, Switzerland? Tickets for basic attendance to this event are $67,000. And a ticket for deeper sessions with meaningful conversations with other powerful people are $600,000. Coming out of their most recent gathering, the World Economic Forum put out a series of promotional videos where they are advertising the Great Reset. Not coincidentally, COVID-19 has generated the emotional turmoil and anxiety that allows the World Economic Forum to step into that void and institute their Great Reset policies. The World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab said, we need to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies. Every country, every industry must be transformed. We need a great reset of capitalism, a revolution that fundamentally changes the way we live, work, and relate to one another, upending existing ways of sensing, calculating, organizing, acting, and delivering. This represents entirely new ways of creating value. So out of that most recent gathering in Davos, they made eight predictions for the world by 2030. I'm just going to share four of them. Number one, all products will become services. This will effectively end private property. Everything will be controlled and distributed by those 3,000 elites that will be in charge. Number two, U.S. dominance is over. They will be developing a single political hegemony to govern the world who will dictate all economic and political decisions. Number three, the values of the West will be broken. Number four, we will eat much less meat. It will be a treat rather than a staple because the production of meat as food is detrimental to the environment and will increasingly be limited. I know this is crazy stuff, but it's reality and it's really happening. Many of the pieces necessary for a one world government are either already in place or being shifted to prepare the way. What about one world currency? The Bible says that in the end times, the whole world will operate under one global currency and it will be the only way to partake in the marketplace. In order to have the currency, people will have to receive a technology that tracks them and authenticates their purchases. Society was already well on its way away from using physical money and towards exclusively using digital money, but the lockdowns generated a five-fold increase in digital spending. Many places have completely stopped accepting cash altogether. I mean, honestly, I think it's actually really cool that I can take a picture of a physical check and have it deposited into my account moments later. Or when I go to Costco, all I have to do is hold up my credit card within a few inches from their sensor to pay for gas. But the reality is that all of these changes are moving us closer and closer to a global currency. In fact, 
the technology is really already here. Listen to this video. It's a YouTube video. You can't see it, but just listen to it. Story that is part personal finance, part science fiction. In Sweden, people are now implanting microchips into their hand that function as their credit card, their ID, and more. Talk about a mobile wallet. Sarah Harmon has more on this brave new world. When Elias Brotberger goes to work, he doesn't need ID. And he doesn't need money. In fact, much of what he needs to get through the day is hidden right there, just below the surface, in his hand. You like to touch it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, weird, yeah, it's yeah. like a grain of rice. Yeah, a grain of rice. Embedded in his hand is a microchip that serves as his keys, his ID, and his wallet. Yeah, it's all in chips. I use it like to get around the building. Buy snacks. Yeah, exactly. Let's buy some snacks. Exactly. So I can't open it. No. Okay. So what I need to do is I need to first blip my chip and it will log me in mm -hmm. and from there I get access to the fridge. Popular TV shows like Black Mirror have imagined chips as part of a dystopian future. Install ingrain procedure with local anesthetic and you're good to go. In Sweden, the microchips are already here. The microchip implants use the same technology that's in contactless credit cards. Which have made cash pretty much obsolete in Sweden. No cash. At this tech fair, a chipping event for those on the cutting edge, merging their hands with this new technology. I thought it would be fun, right? The process is simple and swift. A pinch of the skin, and in a matter of seconds, the chip is inserted. The transformation is complete. As for the pain... I barely felt it. But even in this nation of early adopters, not everyone is racing to get chipped. Feel less human. I will feel like a robot. I think, I mean, it's so much more data can go into this, you know, and it's in your body. There's no central registry tracking how many people are chipped, but biohacker Hannes Wellblood estimates between five and 10,000. In the future, do you think everyone is going to be chipped? I think it will be voluntary, but I am certainly convinced that millions of people will find it very, very valuable to have a smart device under their skin. Human microchipping may be our future, but in Sweden, it's already reality. Sarah Harmon, NBC News, Stockholm. So it's definitely time for me to wrap up this episode. I've gone way longer than I am intending these episodes to be, but I've been sitting on all of these thoughts for a long time now, and it's good to communicate them. I really believe that we are living in the end times. I'm not insinuating that I know how long the end times are going to be, or that Jesus will return in our lifetime, or anything like that. Only God knows the days and hours of the end timeline. However, I think it is really important that we are people who can discern the end times that we live in and hold them up to the plumb line of the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that things aren't going to end peachy with unicorns and sunflowers and rainbows and sunshine, but rather there will actually be a great apostasy or falling away from scriptural ideals. 1 Timothy 4.7 says, The Spirit clearly says that in the last days some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. 2 Timothy 3 says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, 
rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. And Jesus said himself in Matthew 24.10, At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. Friends, I think we're living in these days. And part of the emotion that undergirds this episode is that I've had a revelation about my life and why I've been so rocked by the events of the last several years. It's because I've never truly embraced an eternal perspective. I've never truly surrendered my love for my life on earth in exchange for the reality that this earth is not my home, but a temporary living place. If you're going to really be able to grab onto discernment that can anchor your soul, you have to realize that this world is foreign territory for you. It belongs to the enemy. We are subjects to a domain that is under the ultimate control of Satan. When Adam and Eve succumbed to his temptations in the Garden of Eden, they surrendered their dominion over earth to the serpent. The serpent's plans for this earth are the anti-plans of God. God's long-term plan doesn't involve the earth, but rather spending eternity with you and I. Once you really, like fully, let that realization hit you, it is actually a lot easier to stabilize yourself and let go of how devastated you are with the turmoil in the world and the pressing stress of the fact that the world is in chaos and the worst kind of people seem to keep winning and gaining more and more power. The only power they have is that which is granted to them by God, who remains in control of everything. We must stop living for this earth. There's no way to be secure in that. We must be willing to call evil evil and stand behind the truth of the gospel of Christ. Part of that process is recognizing the spirit of the Antichrist all around us and even in our own lives and taking captive every single thought and bringing it into conformity with the Holy Spirit and his will for our lives. In these times, it's critically important because there is so much temptation and opportunity to engage in the destruction. We must resist and engage in the constructive endeavor of helping build God's kingdom. Our stance for God will echo into eternity. We must start living for that ultimate resting place in heaven. That kind of living is a steady and predictable and it is as steady and predictable and enduring as it gets. That's the kind of discernment that can anchor us. Hey, if you loved this episode, don't hesitate to share it out to someone in your life who you feel might gain value from it. Again, I'm not trying to go viral or get monetized or anything like that, but I certainly want God to use me in any way possible. And if there's someone in your life who could use the encouragement, please do pass this along. Love you guys, and we'll catch you on the next episode.